2: Hargreaves Lansdowne cuts drawdown costs ahead of groundbreaking pension reforms. The principles of investing, why do people pick the stocks they do? And how to invest in one of the few remaining legitimate tax-efficient vehicles, enterprise investment schemes. Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Lucy Warwick-Ching, standing in for Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the week's money news in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues Judith Evans, and Adam Palin, plus our special guest, Greg Davies, Head of Behavioural Finance at Barclays. There's less than seven weeks to go until the most substantial reform of pensions tax and access rules in a generation comes into force in the UK. From April 6th, the government's pension freedom reforms will give over 55s unfettered access to their lifetime savings. This rule change has triggered a lot of movement in the pensions industry and financial services companies are scrambling over each other to launch new services to attract new customers. This week, the UK's biggest fund supermarket threw down the gauntlet to other pension rivals by launching a simple, low-cost income drawdown product aimed at people who want to take advantage of the reforms when they start. Judith Evans, FT Money's investment reporter, has the details. So, Judith... What exactly has Hargreaves done this week?
1: well as you said Lucy Hargreaves and all the other providers have been taking a close look at what they offer hoping that they'll get some new custom from these reforms now Hargreaves already offer um, flexible drawdown for people um, accessing their pension savings but they've revamped that in the expectation that flexible drawdown type arrangements will become far far more popular after the reforms and the main thing they've done there is to cut prices previously if you wanted to set up flexible drawdown you had to pay um, 354 Pounds, including VAT and then each time you changed your payments or, or took a one-off payment you'd have to pay as well. They've now ditched that hoping I think that pensioners who are looking around considering their options will will perhaps go for Hargreaves. And how does this compare to the rest of the market? Well, it's hard to say that at the moment because although we're quite close to the reforms, a lot of companies haven't really set out their stalls yet. And this is partly because the government has taken some time to put out the nitty gritty of what providers are supposed to do. However, we can compare Hargreaves with other direct-to-consumer fund platforms. It's now about the same as Fidelity Personal Investing, at least in terms of ditching those upfront fees. It's less expensive than Barclays Stockbroker's, another competitor which is still charging £90 for setup and also has charges for a review of payments. Um, However, to get the full picture, you'd also have to compare the ongoing platform charges and also, of course, the charges on the underlying products. And why are they doing this?
2: So how important is the issue of pricing?
1: Well, it's become a lot more important over the past couple of years um, since providers have had to set out their pricing instead of just taking money from product providers. Um, That's under the Retail Distribution Review. Hargreaves obviously think that competing on price is going to be an important aspect of attracting people's custom. Certainly, they haven't attracted as much new business as some people thought they would since RDR. And perhaps part of the reason for that is that customers can compare prices between providers. And in, in some cases, Hargreaves is more expensive. Although, of course, it's not just about price, it's about value for money too. So
2: for the retirement savers themselves, is this new landscape going to be quite difficult to navigate?
1: Well, certainly those savers have far more options than they did before because what amounted to a requirement to buy an annuity has been removed. And um, those people are going to be hot property for all the different companies that are hoping to get business from them. So as different companies set out what they're going to offer, it's important not to rush into anything and also to take up the government's offer of free guidance and or see an advisor. Thanks very much, Judith. You can read more about pensions in this weekend's
2: FT Money, which is available in print as part of the Weekend FT or online at ft.com forward slash money. It's also available on iPads and Android tablets. Still to come on the show, how to invest in enterprise investment schemes. Do the generous tax breaks offset the investment risks? First, though, let's have a look at why people invest and what makes them choose the funds they do. This week our main money feature is a confessional piece by FT contributor Ludo Hunter-Tilney in which he bears all on the trials and tribulations of managing his own self-invested personal pension. In the piece he admits to choosing bonds partly because of their reassuring aura of stability and at another point Ludo also takes a punt on an unpredictable renewable energy fund whose value has shot up by 40% but ends up making him a loss. What's behind these investment decisions? And what should he have focused on when choosing his stocks? I'm joined by Greg Davies of Barclays, who can give us an insight into the principles that investors should follow. Greg, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks, Lizzie. Good to be back.
2: In the case of Ludo, what do you think were the factors driving him to make some of his decisions?
0: Well, firstly, if I could say it's a wonderful piece of introspection. And merely documenting the sorts of ideas that are in your heads when you make investment decisions is actually a phenomenally good practice, because only by doing that do we learn what mistakes we're making along the journey. What is also particularly interesting is that Ludo articulates for every single investment he makes a certain rationale behind it. And really what he's doing is every time he makes a decision, and this is what most of us are doing, is he constructs a story for himself. He creates for himself an easily accessible rationale that if someone was to ask you, you know, why did you do that? You've got something to hand. And this is the reason, this is how most of us make investment decisions. We don't make decisions by making optimal trade-offs between abstract notions like risk and return. We make decisions according to what feels comfortable to us at the time. And unfortunately, what feels comfortable to us at the time is invariably a good story. And good stories aren't always the same as good investments.
2: And are there common mistakes that investors make? I know everybody's different, but perhaps if you can just run through some of the other common mistakes.
0: Absolutely. The, the first one really is is not creating a safe environment for investing. So the first common mistake is nothing to do with investing at all. It's simply that people don't prepare enough. They don't insure enough against unpredictable things that can happen in their life. And as a result, they aren't in control of when to sell their investments. Well, we can think of people as investors as being passive-aggressive. They're passive because most people do too little with far too much of their wealth. They they have investable wealth. They're not sure what to do with it, so they leave it sitting in a savings account for year after year. And the second bit is people are aggressive because typically the money they do put into the markets, they are constantly dabbling with, buying and selling, responding to intermediate emotional responses to the short term. And these things add up to cost. And what people are effectively doing is they're making decisions – that enable them to buy the emotional comfort that their short-term emotional self craves, but they do so at at the cost of long-term returns.
2: And so is there a set of rules that investors should stick by when making their decisions?
0: There is. Uh, This set needs to be somewhat tailored to each individual circumstance, and we could get into an enormous amount of detail here. We've we've drafted a sort of 16-point manifesto of rules that constitute good investment decision-making. But broadly speaking, we can we can group these into a, f- a few very high le- level categories. One is create that safe environment to invest. Know how much you can afford to invest. Two is put it to work. Don't sit in cash for long periods of time, but do so, number three, in a diversified way. So diversification is really the only free lunch uh, in investing. The most crucial thing, however, for investors, it doesn't really matter so much when you buy. What matters is when you sell. And it is absolutely crucial that you get to choose when you sell as an investor. And I mean that not just in the sense of having the financial liquidity to hold on through the dips, you also need the emotional liquidity to do so.
2: So you're talking about, you know, people who are constantly monitoring their investments and every day they log on perhaps over a coffee and they see that their investments have gone down and I guess they get the urge to perhaps sell.
0: We as humans are loss averse. We dislike seeing red numbers. Mm-hmm. And the more frequently you look at your portfolio, the more red numbers you're going to see. It's it's, it's quite simple. By monitoring our portfolios in the short term, we induce anxiety on in ourselves and we make ourselves worse investors as a result.
2: And so would your advice be to not monitor them all the time or just to hold fast to make... Stick by your decisions?
0: Uh, Both, not to monitor. Really, the overall piece of advice that I think is best is in investing, you want to make as many decisions as possible ahead of time in a planned and thoughtful way. So set up a program. This is my asset allocation, this is my rebalancing strategy. And what that means is the, the number of decisions you have to make from scratch in the heat of the moment is very slim. If you can also not monitor, it means you're not tempted to make decisions from scratch in the heat of the moment. So really put your wealth to work in a diversified way and leave it alone.
2: Greg, thanks very much. On to our final item for today, enterprise investment schemes. We're nearing the end of the tax year and advisors are falling over themselves to market new products to higher rate taxpayers but the opportunities for minimising tax have reduced in recent years as HMRC has scrutinised different products. EIS schemes are one of the products that HMRC doesn't frown upon, although there are concerns about changes to the rules. Adam Palin has been taking a look. Adam, what are EIS schemes and why were they introduced?
3: Hi Lucy. Well, enterprise investment schemes were launched by the government about two decades ago, and the purpose was to encourage taxpayers to invest in small UK businesses, which obviously have, uh, have problems often getting capital to get off the ground. Now, EIS schemes invest in all range of small companies. They can be tech startups, they can be established small businesses, and really it's across sectors. About half of money goes in directly, and the other half is invested via funds, which tend to invest in, in a portfolio of small companies.
2: So I gather some people might be seduced by the tax advantages.
3: Well, there's a strong investment case that's often put forward very vocally by managers of EIS schemes and by supporters of EIS generally, but often the tax benefits are high up on the priorities of investors. Now, reason for this you alluded to at the start, there are very few government approved ways, if you like, of investing tax efficiently. And EIS to compensate for the inherently high risks of investing in small businesses come with very attractive tax benefits. Among these are income tax relief at 30% of your investment uh, and that can be carried back to offset previous income tax liabilities from the, the previous year and also share disposals are free from capital gains tax although You've got to hold these things for three years. So these are not short-term investment and they are not liquid.
2: So this all sounds very attractive, but are there any risks?
3: Well, one of the risks that people often highlight is the fact that you can't just dispose of your stake in a small company or indeed in a fund very quickly. They're designed to be long-term investments. So you've got to be confident that you don't need your capital for um, for a few years. Now, there's also no income in the sense that, unlike venture capital trusts, which are another tax-efficient mode of investing, there are no dividends that are offered. In terms of the investments themselves, the underlying investments, they are inherently high-risk, and schemes should never be promoted as low-risk investments. They are only appropriate for wealthy investors who have, in most cases, maximised their pension contributions, maximised their ISA, And only then should they really be advised to consider these things.
2: And you mentioned that HMRC, you know, has been looking at other tax efficient products. I mean, is there any danger that they will clamp down on on EISs?
3: Well, HMRC has always reiterated its support of the EIS scheme, and there is cross party political support for these kind of tax incentives to encourage investment into small businesses. However, there have been concerns the rules were being applied to the letter rather than perhaps the spirit when it comes to investment in renewables, particularly solar, which last year accounted for almost half of of inward EIS investments. Now, that was never really the intention of uh, the government policy, and they closed solar schemes from new investment last summer. However, this is not being applied retrospectively. And there is a broad consensus that the government will not apply retrospective policy to claw back tax in the same way has film scheme investments, for example, unless there are breaches of investment rules. And there is always the risk that if a manager of a fund or a company that qualifies for AS uh, has not met the conditions of the qualifying investment, that the tax breaks will be removed from investors.
2: Thanks very much, Adam. There's more on EISs and how to minimise your tax bill in this weekend's FT Money. Other highlights include an interview with Anthony Ward-Thomas, the removals man to much of London's high society. He's helped Boris Johnson and the Archbishop of Canterbury move house, among others. We look at how stock pickers can get the highest returns in today's markets and Serious Money looks at whether ethical funds can ever outperform the stock market. The Money Show will be back next week when Jonathan Ely will be back in the hot seat, But for now, it's goodbye from me, Adam, Judith, and our special studio guest, Greg Davies.
3: For more
0: downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.